I think it's so easy for us as we sit around talking conversation, whether it's in our office or whether we're eating in the break area or we're gathering in a home, our heritage comes up. Now, to be honest with you, I never thought a whole lot about my heritage until I came to Chicago. I was a southerner. I was an American. I didn't know anything about my heritage. It was only when I came to Chicago and got around all these Puerto Ricans and their heritage and banter back and forth with some Mexican-Americans or maybe some African-Americans began to hear some of the white people talk about their Italian or their German background. And then we merged with Salem and I began to hear about Norwegian and Swedish. But I didn't know anything. So I did some research. I found out I'm a mutt. I'm a mutt. Yes. On my father's side, I'm British and Scots-Irish. On my mother's side, I'm Irish and German and Native American. Two lines of my family did some research and published some books. And, and, and as I looked through them, I couldn't find anything, though, that went beyond earlier than 1803. So I looked through these things. I, I didn't see any super important people in my lineage. No super wealthy people. They just were people with humble existence. There are some people in my background that I can say, that's my great-grandma. She was a godly lady. I love her. Uncle Tom, he was a character. I love him. He ran a bar. He never come to Christ. I love being around him. Then there are some people in my background, questionable character maybe, kind of embarrassing. It's easy for us, isn't it, to drop names, to make ourselves look better, maybe more important. You know, I'm related to so-and-so. That's just our sin nature. But that's not how God showed the heritage of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Matthew, the first chapter, verse 1 through 17, looks at the heritage of Jesus Christ as far as his human lineage. He goes back to King David and to, uh, to uh, Abraham. Christ's divine heritage is given in verses 18 through 25. And I think it was uh, uh, Louis a while ago that mentioned that Jesus Christ was fully man, fully God, when he lived here on earth. And, and don't worry, I'm not planning on reading through all these names in a genealogy. I, I know that genealogies can look and seem to be very boring. But if we do some studying, we can find some pretty interesting characters. Some great stories of faith, of people who trusted Christ and whom God used in a wonderful way. It gives witness to the humanity of our Savior. Christ had ancestors. 
He had relatives just like you and me. He came down from heaven. Remember that. He was born as a man, but Christ existed as eternal God prior to his incarnation. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. I want us this morning to focus initially on Jesus Christ's humanity. And as we look at the human line of Jesus, we will see over and over a God of grace. A God of grace. A God who is sovereign over all things. The blessings of God on people have nothing to do with their righteousness or with their good deeds. It's his grace. Again, many of the names that we would see in this genealogy are names that we recognize. They're real people. And all these names in that list were sinners. Some were just scandalous. Just as some of my ancestors were not such fine people, we see skeletons in the closet of God. I placed Christ's ancestors just into three categories so we can kind of remember them. First is the outstanding ones. That's like King David and Abraham. The outsiders, four women who were outside of the Jewish race. And finally, outcasts, just because I couldn't think of a name. They weren't outcasts in culture, but they were scandalous in their lives. So outsiders, I'm sorry, outstanding outsiders uh, and outcast. Even some of the most outstanding people, as I mentioned, were not, let's say they were far from perfect. Matthew 1, 1 reads, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. It's very clear from God's word that these two men were key. They were outstanding. We celebrate them. They're celebrated as, as, as uh, wonderful men in our, in our history, and yet their lives were a mess. They were miserable sinners just like you and me, and trying to handle things himself, and we never do that, do we? Never try to handle things on our own. But when Abraham tried to, to handle things, um, his actions actually went, to God, went against what God's plan was, and... Um, could have really created some problems. He was a great man of faith, and yet he committed some gross sins. Romans 4, 3 says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And yet he tried to convince God that the son of his slave, Hagar, must be his heir. And even after God had said, no, Abraham, it is to be your son from Sarah, your wife. He still didn't listen. He lied about his wife and put her in a compromising situation. And by trying to pass her off as his sister, he placed her in a situation where she was available for marriage. 
He did this not just once with Pharaoh, but also with Abimelech. We know from history later on, his son did the very same thing. Well, Abraham was definitely a man of God, used by God. And yet we see his fallenness. In a similar way, God says of King David, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. And yet, we know that he was an adulterer and a murderer. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, and then he had Uriah killed. King David killed so many, he slaughtered so many people that God would not allow him to build the temple. He's also an example of a very poor father who did not discipline his children. One son, Amnon, raped his daughter Tamar. This girl's full brother, Absalom, in turn, killed his brother. And then later, Absalom rose up against King David to take over the throne. Father Abraham and King David were godly men that we celebrate. They were used by God in many ways, and yet these outstanding men were far from perfect. As I looked at people in the the genealogy, I, I, I saw these four women, actually there are five, counting Mary, but I, I saw four women that were outsiders. They, they were Gentiles, they weren't Jewish. And so I, I categorized them as, as outsiders. In verse 3, we read, Judah was the father of Perez and Zariah, whose mother was Tamar. And if we do our research, we'll see there's a skeleton in the closet. Tamar was King David's great-great-great-grandmother. She was a Canaanite. She committed incest with her father-in-law, Judah. If you remember, her husband died because he was wicked. Second oldest brother, or the next oldest brother, came along to be uh, her husband, and he did things against God, and he was killed. And so Judah would not even, even though he told her that she could have the third son, he withheld. And so since she was childless, childless, she went and dressed like a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law and gave birth to her sons. She was guilty of incest and prostitution, but grace was extended to her. Couple verses down in verse five, we read that Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I don't know about you, but I can still remember as a little boy going to Sunday school and seeing the, the, these um, pictures of the city that was with a wall, and I saw this red cloth, and I and, and I remember so well the story about Rahab. This prostitute who, because she 
believed in them and, and hid them, she was spared when the city of Jericho was destroyed. Again, she was a Canaanite. A Canaanite. Do you remember? Do you remember about Canaanites? They didn't have very good names. She was a Canaanite and she was a prostitute. And yet, she found grace. So much so that she's in the lineage of our Savior. Well, following the mention of Rahab, we read in the same verse, in verse 5, Boaz was the father of Ovid, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was King David's great-grandmother. She was a Moabite. It's another group of people that they didn't have a very good name, did they? Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 23, 3 says that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter into the assembly of the Lord. And yet, God in his sovereignty placed this outsider in the line of his Savior for us. Ruth. Again, the Bible says nothing negative about her. Only that she came from the Moabites who worshipped stone gods. God graciously brought Ruth into the family of Israel through marriage to Boaz. In verse 6, we read that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You notice that it doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name? Most versions don't. I think the New American Standard puts in parentheses. The New Living Translation, I think, does the same thing. Bathsheba's name is not even mentioned. She's just the wife. The wife of Uriah. Well, Bathsheba was David's wife. As I said earlier, who had been the wife of Uriah, who was involved in the adultery and whose affair led to um, him being murdered. And yet God brought her into the line of our Savior. Outsiders, totally outside of the faith, totally outside of the, the race, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, women that were outsiders, yet brought in. You know, if I were writing this genealogy, or probably if you were writing this genealogy, we might put some women in there, but we probably would put like Sarah, you know, wife of Abraham, and maybe Rebecca, Isaac's wife, you know, Leah and, and Rachel. We might leave these others out. But see, God in his sovereignty made sure that these women were mentioned. Because he wanted us to know that this Savior that came as a babe was not just for the Jewish race, 
but for all sinners in all the world. His choice of these ladies illustrates God's grace. Later on, Matthew talks about the fact that Christ came not to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. Hmm. Christ didn't just come for the Jews, but for the whole world. And his genealogy teaches us that Christ came not only for sinners, but through sinners. Matthew could have left the women out. After all, if you study Jewish history, women were not usually included in genealogies. And certainly, Gentiles were not included in genealogies. And yet, Matthew chooses to highlight Gentiles, prostitutes, deceit, and even murder. So, as we look at our Savior's ancestors, we see the outstanding, who were far from perfect. We see these outsiders, some were the past. And third, we come to the outcast. And again, they weren't outcast in the culture they were in, but there's just those skeletons in the closet, so to speak. If we were to look carefully at some of these people, we see that their lives were characterized by unfaithfulness and by immorality and idolatry and apostasy. Jacob in verse 2 there. We know the story of Jacob. He's a deceiver. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing from Esau. Then there's Judah, I mentioned earlier, committed incest with his daughter-in-law. And down in verse 6, there's Solomon, polygamist, married hundreds of wives, and most of them from pagan countries. They turned his heart and the heart of Israel from the true and living God. Then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, despised God's people. He was hot-tempered in lustful power. He had only 18 wives and 60 concubines. To support his lavish lifestyle, he overtaxed the people, which led to eventually the division of Israel. And then there's that wonderful king, King Ahaz, in verse 9. He resisted all the prophets, all that was said to him. He even sacrificed children to this sacred uh, fires. And then there's Manasseh, probably one of, one of, if not the most evil and wicked kings of Israel in all the history. He rebuilt all the, the, the pagan altars in high places. He practiced sorcery and even sacrificed his own son. And yet he's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. We could go on and on, but I'll spare you that. Frederick Brunner summarizes this genealogy this way. He said, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable 
ancestors of Jesus available in order, in turn, to insert them into his record. And so, it seems, to preach the gospel. The gospel, that is, that God can overcome and forgive sin and can use soiled but repentant persons for his greatest purposes in history. Isn't that powerful? That's powerful. I love that. I love it. Jesus Christ comes, came from a long line of sinners, some shameful sinners. And yet, we're seeing so clearly that Christ came for us as sinners, but he came again through sinners. Well, Matthew's genealogy um, clearly, uh, he, he writes in such a way um, that the Jews, to show the Jews that Jesus was their king. It, it's, it's so very clear as you read through this and you see Matthew wrote, yes, he wrote to the Jews, clearly communicating Christ is the Messiah. He's the king. But he also wrote to all the rest of the world, to all the sinners of the world. As we read through this, we just see God's sovereignty over the whole process in, in different ways. Matthew is careful to show that Jesus Christ's lineage makes him both son of David and son of Abraham. Again, Matthew 1.1 says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God had made important covenants with both Abraham and David regarding the Messiah. In the first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, God promises the then childless Abraham, well, Abraham as we call him, a son. In Genesis 12, 1-3 says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The second covenant, the Davidic covenant, was made with, with David. God promised David that his dynasty would be eternal. And it's through David's seed that we see the Messiah will reign forever. Second Samuel chapter 12 says, The Lord declares that we will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. And your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. As I was studying this reading, I saw over and over, you don't think a whole lot about it, but over and over, people called Christ son of David. Matthew 9, 27, as Jesus passed by, the two blind men followed him, crying, Aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So we see in this genealogy God's sovereignty. You see, fulfilled prophecies. You see, fulfilled these covenants. We see different ways, again, God's sovereignty. 
we see something in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Do you see the history of Israel divided into three sessions? In the first 14 generations, we kind of see an, an upward slant from Abraham to King David and King Solomon. It seemed like things just went better, peaking with, with King David and, and, and Solomon. The second generation plummets downward from King Solomon to the, the uh, exile to Babylon. And during this time, the kingdom's divided. The northern kings are consistently evil. The other kings were a mixture of Judah, were a mixture of good and bad. And from a human point, it looked hopeless that God might complete his covenants. The last 14 generations moved back upward from the exile to Christ. As God delivers his people from Babylon and brings a remnant back to the land of Israel. I love the Old Testament. I remember for years I didn't really read the Old Testament until I was in, in a seminary and I had an Old Testament professor and he, he just gave me a love for the Old Testament. I began to see all these people's lives. I, it's, it's, it's great because it shows you and me just how all these people were. It doesn't sugarcoat. It doesn't leave out their sins. It doesn't leave out where they failed. It shows who they are. We see steps of faith, and yet we also see miserable sinners, same sinners that we are. And yet, through all this, we see God's promises are always kept. Even the best kings, David and Solomon, had pretty messed up lives. And their sins caused much trouble for the nation of Israel. If the fulfillment of God's promises depended on mankind, we would really be messed up. But we know that God was sovereign. But in the midst of all these various generations, God was sovereign. Even in the chaos, even in the sin, even in the rebellion of the nation of Israel, God was sovereign, just as he is sovereign today. He's working his purpose, his plan, year after year. And when we see chaos like last weekend, and we think that things are out of control, we can be sure that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who brought all these things to place, he's still in control. He's still in control. Well, we see, I've seen then the human lineage of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the divine origin of of the Messiah in verses 18 through 25. 
the gene genealogy in 1 through 17 showed the humanity of Christ. And after proving the humanity of Christ with the right pedigree, he then shows the divine origin of Christ. Christ, again, was fully human and fully God. In verse 18 through 25, if you would read with me, let's look at, at, at these verses. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed, been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We see in this short passage, we see clearly the miraculous nature. Mary was a virgin. The deity of Christ is declared by the angel to Joseph, saying, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for she is, for that which is conceived in her is by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, 23 quotes and shows the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14, that passage that talks about the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then we look at Jesus' names. They describe Christ and his work. Jesus, of course, means Yahweh saves. For his people will save, for he will save his people, rather, from their sins. Powerful. And then Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. In Matthew 28, 19, 20, that great commission where he says, you know, to go out and make disciples. But he adds on there, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In John 14, verses 16 and 17 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit. And here Christ is saying to the disciples before he leaves, I'm leaving you with a helper, the Spirit of God. I think sometimes we fail to see what it means that we have God at immediate access. I think we take it for granted. I still think of how the, the, the priest, once a year, when they'd have to tie 
a rope with bells on it as he went into the Holy of Holies to see whether he was struck dead or whether they could, could hear because the, the bells would quit ringing. They could drag him out. I, I think of, of uh, Exodus when God tells Moses, he says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Do we do that? I, I don't think we do that, do we? It goes on, for the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Yes, we have God with us, Emmanuel. We have access. We don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to sacrifice animals because Jesus Christ came as a babe. He died on the cross and rose. He sits in heaven. He intercedes for us. We don't have to fear in the way the Old Testament saints did. Hebrews 10 says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Again, Jesus, fully human, fully man, and yet fully God. He came to die for our sins. Christ came to save sinners. I, I love 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, because it shows the power of of God in the lives of people who repent and turn to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither with the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Powerful. Powerful. Christ came to save sinners. First Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ came to save all sinners, not just the Jews. I love the passage when we went through Ephesians chapter 2, 12 and 13. He's talking to the Gentile believers. He says, remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, we were not apart. We were outsiders from Jewish race, and yet we, and we had no hope because of Christ, we have direct access. Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to save all sinners, not just Jews. Christ came to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. Remember these individuals in Christ's genealogy. Not only did the women, did some of the women have a sinful past, they were outsiders again. They were outside of the Jewish race. Tamar played the harlot. Rahab was a professional prostitute. Ruth had worshipped a pagan stone god. Bathsheba committed adultery. And then there were the men. Abraham lied about his wife, went against God's uh, wishes. Jacob was a deceiver. King David, murderer, adulterer. Solomon, polygamist. King Ahaz, idolater, Manasseh, one of the most evil kings. God was willing to use these very questionable people in his plan to save the world. He used Gentiles. He used prostitutes. He used adulterers and idolaters, deceivers and polygamists. You see, today, as we look toward Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can be saved by Christ as we come to him, as we repent of our sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness. I still think back many years ago when my sisters, Aline, wasn't a believer. And I would keep sharing the gospel with her and she kept putting it off. She said, would say to me often, Ralph, I'm just not good enough. I'm not good enough. I said, Eileen, you sure or not? We never will be. We never will be good enough. Never ever. There's anyone here who thinks that they need to clean their act up before they come to Christ. I want you to know that we can't clean our acts up. We can't. We see the genealogy of Christ, our Savior. We see the total depravity of mankind. But today, we're offered salvation through Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate on Christmas, his birth. For those of us who are believers, who maybe have fallen, who have 
disobeyed God. There's some, I'm sure, who may struggle thinking, God can never, ever use me. That's not true. That's not true. God longs. He longs to use us. We're frail. We fall so short. And yet, we have a God full of grace and mercy. who came to us through a line of scandalous people so that we might have direct, immediate access to our Father in heaven through faith in him, him alone. I hurt sometimes because I know how Satan hits me. I fail miserably. And Satan says, you're not a good father. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said this. Satan's a liar. He wants you to look at your past. Christ wants you to look to him and believe. And trust that he'll use you in a wonderful way. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. That verse, I had on my my walls for years because you see I'm a big sinner God in his grace saved me you go back to my genealogy and maybe before Christ I was scandalous I was an embarrassment you see Christ comes into our lives and he changes us we're headed in this direction, he turns us around in a totally opposite direction. We're new creation in Christ Jesus. As we close up, I don't know where you come today. I don't know where you, where you are. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ came that you and I might have life might have life everlasting, free of guilt, of sin, no condemnation in Christ. Prayer counselors, if you would come up, the band comes. I don't know what your needs are, but I know we all struggle. If you've never trusted Christ, I invite you to come and ask questions with our prayer counselors. If you're just struggling and and in need prayer, come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,
Lord, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Father, we see ourselves in so many ways. We see sinners. We see, Lord, some scandalous people with past. And Lord, that's some of us. But thank you, God, for all that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, that we have hope. We have access to you, Father, in Christ. We just thank you and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.